If you'd remain standing, our scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. It's so good here to be here with you all this morning as we're kicking off a new sermon series called That's Good News. Uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at a part of the Christian faith that in many ways, if you think about it in terms of contemporary Christianity, it's been kind of pushed to the edge in terms of our Christian walk and in terms of what it means to live the Christian life. And so my hope over the next four weeks is that we're going to be able to see how our job as Christians is to be witnesses to our faith. Because if you go and you look in the New Testament, you'll see that Paul and Peter and James and Philip and Barnabas and any of those other first century apostles, it always says in the book of Acts and in other parts of the New Testament, it says so-and-so was a witness to the faith of Jesus Christ. And that's what fueled the church. That's what fueled everything that happened that we read about in the New Testament, even in our scripture this morning, which means us being a witness. And in many ways, and I think the best way that this book presents it, it means being a witness and making the invite to someone and then realizing and recognizing that after that, it's God's job to work fully in people's hearts. For the past couple weeks, we had a sign-up in the Welcome Center. For those of you who wanted a copy of the book, if you'd like to read it, I encourage you to do so. Books did come in, and uh, Katie spent some time this morning writing your name on the cover on a piece of tape. And so if you did sign up for a book, they're back there. They have your name on them. Uh, if you would, check your name off the list so that I can know who took them to make sure that those wanted one got one. And then also there are a few extras if anyone else would like one. Uh, I'd encourage you to take it. Again, if you just write down your name so that I can know who's been reading it. It's more just for me because I'm curious, not because I'm going to do a book report or ask you to do anything. Um, although I might. Who knows? Um, why not? If your preference is an electronic version of the book, like I've mentioned, all the e-readers, it's available. And so if you want to download it and just read it at your convenience in that way, I'd encourage you to do so. I have to admit to you all, and I've got to start by saying I've had this book on my shelf for four months. And sometimes when you plan your sermons out a little far, uh, you'll get something and you'll think, man, that'll preach. That'll be really good. And then I look at my calendar and go, oh, well, it's summer. And so I don't want to do it in summer. Also, I have these other things going on, and, and so I've kind of been sitting on it in, in an antsy way, and actually I've reread it a couple of times since April when I got the book, and so I think it's, it's that important for us to think about and for us to be involved in. And so uh, what I try and do with this book, for those that are looking at reading, um, I try and read a chapter a day of a book in my office. Now, if you were to call me every day and say, did you read your chapter? About half the time I'd go, oh yeah, I need to do that. Um, but... This one is one that I read it in about 90 minutes. 
in one day and highlighted it and then went back and reread it. And so um, I'm just really excited for us to, to be starting this today. But this morning, I want to get us thinking about um, someone who was a major player in the Methodist movement in the United States and the American colonies. Uh, this individual at his time was more popular than George Washington. And the two men lived the same time in the American colonies. And as I've been reading his biography, uh, it sounds like I believe, and I may be wrong if anyone goes and Googles this, I think him and George Washington actually met two times in their life. And this man, you could see his picture on the slide. His name was Francis Asbury. He was a father of Methodism in the United States. Uh, he was a lay preacher sent by John Wesley from England in the 1760s. And like most early Methodist preachers, he was a circuit rider, which meant that he was assigned an area that he was supposed to travel on horseback. And he would go from area to area. Sorry. And as he would go from area to area, he would deliver the gospel, he would baptize, he would do all of these different things. Well, actually, he didn't baptize at the beginning because people are expected to go to the Episcopal Church for worship. But he would go from community to community. And so in our area, a circuit rider would go from, you know, Clovis, and then they'd go to Melrose, and then maybe they'd go to Portales, then they'd go to Floyd and Dora, and then probably Arch, because there would have been a, people in Arch, and so they would have gone to Arch. They would have circled back through and gone maybe to Farwell, Texaco, Grady. Where am I forgetting? <clears throat> Pleasant Hill. And other places that you all know and I don't know because I'm, well, I just don't know. And so you get what I'm saying is, is what the circuit riders would do was go from community to community and there they would meet with families, they would meet with churches, they would preach, they would uh, share in love feast, they would uh, listen to people's confession and they would spread the gospel. And here's where Asbury became um, so recognized is when the American Revolution was happening, if you'll remember, many of the, the churches on the East Coast, especially in the United States, were Episcopalian or Anglican. And if they're Episcopalian or Anglican, that means that they're part of the Church of England, which means that the pastors are actually employed by the British government. And so as you can imagine, as the uh, Civil or Revolutionary War was starting up, uh, England was actually recalling all of the Episcopalian priests. And John Wesley was also recalling all of the lay pastors that he sent over. And so a number of English-born lay pastors went back to England, except Francis Asbury, and there may have been one or two others, but he's the one that history really remembers. Because he recognized that there was a need in spreading the gospel no matter what was happening in terms of political climate of the day. He recognized that the message he needed to take and the people that he needed to be in communication with and in community with were there in the colonies, and it didn't matter what else was happening. Now, if you read his biography, he spent some, it was kind of a hairy time in the revolution because people were you know, getting tar and feathers and putting them on people that they thought were uh, English sympathizers. But John, so John Wesley, or John Wesley, Francis Asbury spent a lot of, of the Revolutionary War in Delaware, but he stayed. And so he stayed and he continued to minister. And so after the war, people looked to him as one who was part of them because he didn't leave. And so after the war, he, you know, people looked to, to Wesley. Asbury wrote Wesley and said, if the, if the Episcopalian church isn't sending clergy out, we need to be able to do baptisms. We need to be able to celebrate communion. And so Wesley made him a general superintendent of the church. This resulted in him traveling. So here's the map. 
this is his uh, typical Episcopalian journey in a year. And so he would go all the way far south is Charleston, South Carolina. And he would go west into Pennsylvania and, well, Ohio on that map. He did a little bit. But, and then he'd get all the way up into New York and the Northeast. And he did all of that on horseback. That was an annual circuit that he made. He planned his circuit to where he was in uh, the southern part of the, the East Coast in the winter months when the weather was not awful and the mosquitoes wouldn't pick you up and fly away with you. And then he would go, you know, north in the summer months when it would be cooler because he knew that that was better. And, and so uh, what this did, though, and why I'm talking with him is because Asbury became a name that was known more than anybody. And it was because he built community. He was in people's homes and he focused on the essentials of faith. As he helped new Christians to be forged into the disciples that God has called each of us to be and created each of us to be. See, I think one of the greatest successes of the early Christians and the greatest shortcomings of probably the last 100 years in the Methodist movement is we have not focused on the essentials of faith in the way that we've needed to. We've allowed ourselves, if you think about it, to get distracted by non-essentials. We've read the scripture where Jesus tells us that, that we need to go plant the seeds for God today that God will harvest tomorrow. <clears throat> But often that means that we've read that passage of Scripture. We've read the passage about how we are to sow seeds. And we've not read the part where it also calls us to trust in God's perfect plan and His perfect timing for the seeds that you and I have to sow. And so our lack of focus on the essentials of faith means that we allow for the core truths of the faith to be watered down, overlooked, or just ignored. And there's a reason that Jesus tells this parable of the sower. In this parable, you'll see it's, Jesus, it's the parable sowing a seed on good ground, on fertile soil, as well as rocky soil. And if you'll notice, and if you'll go back and read the parable, Jesus doesn't par uh, criticize the sower for throwing seed that landed on rocky soil. Because for him, what he was telling the parable for, what he was emphasizing for the people that were listening and for us that received this message today, is the important part is that the person sowed the seed no matter where it fell. Because it's our job to sow the seeds, and it's God's job to do the harvest, isn't it? See, I think sometimes we get ourselves caught, and we get to thinking more about the harvest and what, what we're going to do when the harvest happens. And I'll be honest with you, when it comes to people's hearts, when it comes to people's souls, the only person who can, can know in that and the only person who can influence that is God, isn't it? Or if there's someone who can, let me know. But even then, that wouldn't be of God. Because our job is to sow the seeds. Our job is to show the good, sow the good news that's shared by the earliest Christians about the life, about the ministry, and about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? He's saying, here are the essentials of what I've been told and the essentials that you need to know. And, of course, he bases them off of the same teachings that you and I are able to read in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, each of these authors writing their own account of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, friends, if you think about it, do you know anything? Do we know anything about Jesus beyond what's put in the Gospels? Does anybody? No, right? 
Because the Gospels tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. There's nothing else. Other Gospels have been uh, attempted to be recognized. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's others. But through the church and through examination and through the history of the church, we've said no. That's not who we are. That's not what we believe. Because we believe in the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write. That tell us the good news. They tell us the promise. And they tell us that we too will celebrate the victory over death through resurrection. The Gospels tell you who Jesus was. The Gospel tells you who Jesus is. You can't water down the Gospels. We can't change Jesus' teachings, nor can we include or omit what we don't like that the Gospels tell us about Jesus. How many of us would love to eliminate the portions of Scripture where Jesus causes us to think about what we do and how we give to the church and how we handle our money? It'd be easier to read the Gospels if we didn't have to read those verses, wouldn't it? Or our relationships, or perhaps a couple weeks ago, you know, talking about forgiveness and, and how Jesus tells, you know, the, the people in the Gospels that we're to forgive others 70 times 7. Folks, that's a lot of forgiveness, and that means we have to face people that we don't want to face. But for over 2,000 years, the words of the Holy Spirit have inspired the church, have led the church. And help us to know that the Bible tells us that Jesus is exactly who he is. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Paul writes to a church that's straining to, to stay on message. They're straining to, to follow who they believe and what they believe. And so he writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, on which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So this is up at the beginning. Paul's not telling him anything new. You'll notice that, isn't he? He says, I'm reminding you of what, I've been told, what you've already been told. This isn't him saying, here's some new information that I've learned about Jesus. Here's something else that I think we should throw in there. What he is saying is he's saying, you know the foundations of faith, but let me remind you of what they are. Because obviously they've gotten a little off path. He's not adding to the words. He's reminding them of the words. And he's reminding them of the faith that they have discovered in roughly the 18 months that he spent in the Corinthian church teaching them. He's saying, I'm reminding you. I want to remind you of the truth. I want to remind you of the essentials. I want to remind you of the core of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Jesus. Why did he have to do this so soon? I mean, we have a lot of teachers in here. How often do you teach your class something, and in about a, a New York minute, they've already forgotten it, and they're doing something else, right? I mean, we can all think of times we've been told something, and sure enough, you know, you turn around, and you've already forgotten what it is. I mean, this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They've run into the problem of drift. They've, they've run into problems of drift in terms of believing who Jesus was. They'd run into the problem of, of slowly straying away from the gospel truth as they were led astray. And this is the same that can happen to us if we're not in God's word, if we're not studying God's word, if we're not putting ourselves in the truth of what the Bible says to us about who Jesus was. And we might also drift. You know, there's pop culture theology. The culture wants us you to think that, that the, the Christian message is about being nice to other people. Without the repentance, without the return, without uh, the sacrifice, without uh, being a part of who God wants you to be and who we know that God wants us to, to be as a part of, a, of the body of Christ. And so that's drift. 
Or maybe it's armchair theology of people that, that know just enough of the Bible to be dangerous, to where they can quote three, three or four words in a verse, but they forget the, the other half of the verse that maybe doesn't exactly make the point that they're trying to make. Or we may just find where there are teachings that we hear that are loosely connected to the gospel and what the historic church tells us, what the orthodox church tells us, what we have said we are, and those things that align within the Apostles' Creed and those basics of faith that we've professed to believe. Folks, we can drift if we're not attentive. And here's the thing about drift. You don't notice you're drifting until you look around and you find that you're off course. You know, so I was thinking about, in my own life, drift experience. So in 1997, I graduated high school, and I got to go with the Boy Scout troop to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in the northern Minnesota. It's right on the, the Canadian border. And so there were probably 32 of us. We had two different groups, so 16 and 16 or something like that. I think our group had four canoes and, you know, two people in each canoe. And so we spent two weeks canoeing on the lakes of northern Minnesota, getting into Canada and some of the lakes. And when it came to drift, you can see how easy it is. On some of the biggest lakes that we were on, we quickly learned that if we didn't keep the front of the canoe, which I forget what it's called, aligned with whatever landmark or in the distance, we would slowly get off course with every stroke of our paddle. The drift was tiny. Your getting off course was just a hair until you look around and you realize that in a period of time, if you're not paying attention, you've gotten yourself far off of course, far, farther off the course that you intended to be on. And that's the same thing that happens to faith, isn't it? If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, if we don't keep ourselves in God's word, if we're not reading the Gospels to know what God tells us about Jesus and about his teachings and about everything else, then we could look around, we can turn around, and we can find that we have drifted far further than we ever intended. And then Paul says, by this, I, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. In the New Living Translation, it says, it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. You see what Paul's saying? So he's laid out the essentials, and now he's saying that the gospel of Jesus is the good news that we need. That Jesus does save you, not just for his, his present kingdom, but also for his future return. But he saves you for today, and when he saves us, he saves every bit of us. And so that means our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being, everything. Our mental, he saves us all. And so the Corinthian church had to figure it out. A teacher named Apollos, there was also an apostle named Paulos in the New Testament. So this Apollos was a different one. And he had followed Paul to Corinth after Paul had left and gone to Ephesus, which was about 50 miles away. And so Apollos had shown up and he'd said, well, this Christian message is great. And let me tell you about Jesus, but I've also got some secret knowledge that I want you to know about him. And so people began to pursue that secret knowledge, and so they were being led astray. Additionally, another man named Simon Peter, not the same as the apostle Simon Peter, uh, showed up in Corinth, and, and he was teaching to the church. He was saying, you may not be a Christian unless you're, you're, you should have manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You're able to speak in tongues, or you're able to do other things in the Holy Spirit. And see, friends, both of these were seductive enough for the people to believe, but they weren't talking about the gospel truth. And that's how it is as well. 
We may hear other teachers telling us that the truth is real, that it's not. Or maybe it's this idea of we get where, where we can follow Jesus without hearing Jesus' call to repentance and call to baptism and adjusting our life choice to the true Gospels. Friends, every time the church has tried to water down the Gospels, the only thing that has happened is the, is, is the church has gotten weaker. And Jesus has kept doing what Jesus has done, and he's kept growing in, in areas where, where he grows. Because there's a reason that he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, all who come to the Father except through me. Because he knows that our only avenue to approach God is through the body and blood of him and the sacrifice that he made for us. That's it. And so that's why Paul, when he's telling the Corinthian church, here's what's important. I'm passing on to you what's important. He's, he's passing on to them this solemn responsibility that he sees of himself to share the gospel to the church. And he realizes and he recognizes that it's an awesome privilege. And he doesn't take it for granted because he realizes that every letter that he writes may be his last. So he preached Jesus at all times. So let's look at what he included in this verse. He says, Jesus died for our sins. You know, Paul doesn't mince words. I love the words of Paul. If you read his letters, go read the book of Romans. Go read Galatians. Go read Ephesians, Corinthians. You know, he doesn't mess around. And so like in Romans, Paul writes that, that we are all sinners, every one of us. We're all sinners, everyone. And he doesn't list or rank the severity of our sins. He says every one of us needs sin, himself, need grace, himself included, and we all need forgiveness. And so he believed and, and he taught that the Bible is consistent about that, about how our sin separates us from God. And it's our choice to sin. But here's the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died, and that proves God's love toward us. While you were sinning, Christ died for you. Before you ever sinned, because God loves you. That's an amen. And then he says, the scriptures are accurate testimony of Jesus. Folks, we can either accept what the Bible tells us about Jesus or we can't. And we can't blend biblical truth of Christ with the culture and expect the Holy Spirit to work or to even be active in our lives. For the Bible, to, it stands on its own. It doesn't need us to, to fancy it up. It doesn't need us to change it. It just needs us to be consistent in reading it and studying it and believing what it says. And before we think, and before we start reading the Bible and thinking about those people, we have to remember that, that many times the Bible is speaking to us in the same way it's speaking to, to maybe when we think of others when we, th when we read it. Because there's a temptation for us to make the Bible say what we want. And we have to resist that temptation. Because there's a reason that these words of God have guided the church and have filled people's lives, changed people's lives, uh, just done amazing things for over 2,000 years. It's because the word of God should change us. But we have to study it. We have to read it. We have to be in it. Paul also talks about how Jesus was buried. I mean, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't. 
We can't believe that, that if Jesus was resurrected, then you have to believe that he fully died, that he was not, you know, just in this some state of whatever when he was laid in the tomb. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another martyr for the faith. Go look at the book of Acts chapter 4 or 5. Uh-oh. Anyway, in Acts 4 or 5, when the New Testament church is talking about how they're going to deal, or when the New Testament, the Sanhedrin is talking about how they're going to deal with Peter, Paul, James, John, all of those leaders of the church, um, you know, you'll remember that Gamaliel, who was an esteemed teacher, a Jewish teacher in the law, you know, said, listen, he listed two other people, and he said, they were followers that people were following, but when they died, their message died. We need to allow the, the new, these people, so it would have been James and John and the early Testament uh, fathers of the church. He said, if, if they go and their message stays, then it's of God and there's nothing we could do. Right? But see, that's the thing. Is the, the, we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because that's what gives us life. God blew into the lungs of Jesus and gave him life. Death couldn't hold him. And so when we talk of Jesus, we talk not of a martyred prophet. We talk not of a teacher that was killed. We talk of a risen Savior. And folks, the part that comes into us is we're all witnesses. We're all witnesses. In the way that Jesus has worked into the, the lives of the early church, in the way that Jesus has worked through generations of people, and in the way that Jesus has chosen to work into your life. We're witnesses. One of the greatest challenges throughout the history of the Christian faith, one of the reasons we have the creeds is because there were those that didn't believe that Jesus really uh, rose from the dead. And so the church had to say no. No. This is essential. This is who we believe. This is why we're able to have a relationship with him. Because the resurrection is the bedrock on which the Christian church is built. Without the resurrection, we don't have hope. Without the resurrection, we don't have grace. Without Jesus' death, we don't have forgiveness. And it's all because on that Easter Sunday, Jesus rose. See, folks, for us to do this, we have to remember that Jesus has given us the very same commission that he gave to the earliest disciples of the church. We may not have seen him in person. We may not have listened to his voice, but we hear him through the teachings of the Holy Spirit and through the way that God has chosen to work through the church throughout history. So when Jesus says to the disciples, he says to you and me, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of this age. See, friends, all I can be is a witness. All I can do, all you can do is sow the seed. And all we can do together is pray that God will bring about the harvest for his glory and for his kingdom as we work to follow and to fulfill the Great Commission. As we minister with authority, as we go out into the world, as we make disciples, and as we be who Christ has and calls us to be.